Hello and welcome to Clinical Line, Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick and thank you for joining me today. One of the things I've recently been talking to people about and indeed writing about is the way in which financial institutions have worked uh, over the past several decades. Employees in financial institutions have been pressured to deliver results and some of that pressure has caused them to feel ethically compromised. Some of these issues have been aired during the Hain Royal Commission which went for, for a year and it reported in February 2019. Commissioner Hain concluded that there were a range of indicators that greed was a major driver in some of the outcomes that banks were seeing whether it be the managers who were getting bonuses for pushing staff, whether it be the senior executives who were looking at targets for generating revenue, and whether it be the general investment portfolios of institutional investors that were being looked at in terms of investment success and the measures of success. I'm really fortunate and privileged today to be joined by the two authors of the report that was commissioned by the Finance Sector Union, John Bottomley and Brendan Byrne. They've looked at, with a small cohort of people in a focus group, what the pressures within a financial institution actually mean when you have someone under the, under the thumb of management being forced to perform and whether or not those regimes are producing a desirable ethical and social result. Uh, John and Brendan, thank you for joining me today. Good to be with you, Tom. You're welcome, Tom. Now, if we can look at the if we can look at this uh, uh, report in in a little while, uh, John, you're probably well placed to outline yeah, the sort of work you do with entities like the finance sector union um, in terms of consulting what what's the what's the organization you've uh, you represent and uh, what's the kind of work you do uh, Brenda and I are both members of the uh, religion and social policy network which is a network of the University of Divinity in Melbourne um, I, I joined the network the, the network um, uh, when it began, uh, it was an attempt by the university to build a bridge between, if you like, the religious um, beliefs and the sort of social policy questions in society. I come to this with a background in um, uh, ministry in the Uniting Church and uh, sociological training and uh, working with families bereaved by work-related death and work injury over a period of about 30 years. Um our network um, was aware of the uh, commission, but it wasn't until near the uh, when the interim report was released that we saw the commissioner focus on the theme of greed, which um, <clears throat> struck us as being quite a um, theologically sort of um, narrow reading of um, the behaviour. So we uh, organised ourselves, wrote a submission uh, to the interim report, pointing out some of the um, questions that a theological perspective might raise that weren't being addressed. 
we shared that with uh, the finance sector union and that began our conversation with them about where we went from there. Brendan comes at it um, from a different uh, background and he might want to just say a few extra words about that. Thanks, John. Um, my ba background is in the um, finance sector itself. I worked in the industry for a little over 10 years um, from the late 80s to the mid 90s. And after that, I actually worked for the union itself, the FSU. Uh, and then I uh, proceeded after about 20 years in the industry to um, candidate to the ordained ministry of the Uniting Church um, and became a minister and am presently in congregational ministry uh, in the Uniting Church. But it was primarily through my past uh, experience as both an employee within the finance sector and as a former union official that I um, connected with John and his work um, and uh, we've been uh, working together now on work and faith issues for the better part of the, the last decade. It's interesting that you've got the background, because I seem to recall uh, uh, your name being mentioned from time to time, Brendan, many, many years ago. <laughs> the And there's a balance of, yeah, I mean, there's a balance between, you know, sort of, the notions of values and how you deliver outcomes and how you uh, how you deal with um, the ethical dilemma dilemmas in practice and it's probably a convenient way to segue into the report. Mm -hmm. uh, why is it that you why is it that you chose the method of um, of research that you did for this particular segment of work? In the end, um, um, it, 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 it partly chose itself, Tom. Um, the union uh, was keen for us to talk to members um, and put out an invitation for members to um, join a focus group, and we had over 40 um, people accept. But when we started trying to organise that on a national basis, uh, according to... Um, the employer that they work for, we just couldn't get a match-up. Uh, and so in the end, we mailed out a survey uh, and the eight people who took part um, completed completed the survey. So that was how we came to it. I think uh, the interesting thing was that the union, when we talked to them, were concerned about how they might develop um, ethical training for their members and so we particularly um, focused on questions of ethics in our, our simple um, survey outline and, and members responded to that um, really with quite a degree of passion and, um, and interest. What? Did anything surprise you about the findings, John and Brendan, about the, uh, that, that emerged from the actual interviews that you conducted with the the focus group members. Brendan, do you want to go first on that? Sure. Um, I have to say I wasn't terribly surprised. 
from my own experience in the industry, both as an employee and as a former union official, a lot of what the people were saying came as no surprise to me, came as no news to me. And indeed, I think that that reflects the reality that many of the issues dealt with by the Royal Commission are in fact old issues and have been around for a long time. Um, what perhaps was surprising was the extent to which people came to work with a very full and detailed sense of themselves as ethical beings and the way in which that framed the way that they viewed and understood work. Um, work for the respondents was more than a merely utilitarian process of earning a living, being able to pay the bills, all that sort of thing. It had a meaning beyond the merely utilitarian, beyond the um, reductionism of work to production and consumption and profitability and efficiency. Uh, the, the meaning that they built into their understanding of work was very much part of their ethical self-understanding. And this meaning that they associated with work was as much violated by the uh, culture of their workplace as their own personal sense of ethics as well. Mm. So, so that was something that the, the the strength and the degree of that was something that was quite surprising to me. Uh, would... Something I wanted to, if I can, John, something I wanted to touch on with Brendan following uh, his response uh, yes. to that. Now, you, you, you walk into yeah, these employees walk into organisations that are sophisticated places that for all intents and purposes have websites that have got lists of values. Uh, they're blasted all over the place. They're in annual reports. Um, uh, they've got you know, CSR, you know, environmental type focuses um, and all that corporate social responsibility focuses and yet people are walking into the buildings and feeling as if their the work is not delivering a holistic value, because that their their ethical their ethical notion the the their, their sense of right and wrong is being violated not by what's written uh, in annual reports and elsewhere, but the way in which people behave in in contradiction of um, of those principles that are articulated. Uh, I found that fascinating in the report. Are you able to, to, to speak more about that incongruity? I think the point that we um, tried to bring forward, <clears throat> Tom, is that the banks uh, actually uh, operate on what we call the capitalist ethic, that is um, an ethic of maximising profit, um, whereas employees, uh, as Brendan's already been describing, had a, a more holistic ethic, uh, which in, embraced the, the meaning of work and the relationships they have with co-workers and with customers. So we ended up calling that a holistic justice ethic. And then what 
we're describing through the um, uh, experience of the of the uh, FSU members is um, uh, at least a clash of ethics. But in fact, because the uh, power relationship is unequal, um, the capitalistic ethic that's forced upon um, employees by management um, is actually a violence. They experience it as a violence and it causes them distress and that distress leads to, um, in many cases, um, symptoms of mental illness. Um, but what we've, we've made a, a, a focus on is trying to bring out from the darkness the fact that the ethical worldview of the boards, the management, and indeed the Royal Commission and the, uh, and the government are all founded deeply on a capitalist ethic where profit maximising is both um, taken for granted and can't be questioned. And how do you, I wasn't in the room at the time when you did the interviews. Um, <laughs> and then when I read the report, I get I get a strong sense from the quotes that are published. What was the intensity like when, when you were doing the actual focus group meetings as a general observation? Uh, we weren't able to get the groups together. Tom, I maybe didn't explain that as well as I could have. Um, because of the logistics of bringing people together at, at, um, at a common time with uh, three time zones in Australia and people around the country, um, we ended up sending them um, th through the union uh, a list of uh, questions. I think that the intensity, uh, which you quite rightly observe in the report, comes off the pages. They wrote with a real passion. Okay. And we'd, we'd, in terms of uh, an issue I raised earlier, and I think, it, it, and Brendan, you've worked in the sector, um, it's the, there is a, con there is clearly a concern expressed about what a company says it stands for, but also what um, uh, a company then delivers on the work floor. Mm. How, I mean, in, in your practical experience, mm. how does that reconcile itself? Because on the one hand, the company is public-facing, saying we believe in X, Y and Z, but if what's happening internally is contrary to um, the you know, beliefs X, Y and Z, how, how does it get reconciled, if at all? Well, it, it does, doesn't get reconciled, and that's the source of trauma for the people who responded to our survey, and that's what our research picked up, because all those outward-facing statements that you refer to are part and parcel of what attracts people to work in the industry or for a particular organisation. But then when the, in practice they discover that the organisation operates in a way that's very different from uh, the stated ethics, the stated mission, the stated value of the organisation, that's the point, the intersection at which uh, trauma often occurs. 
because there is a sense of betrayal, there is a sense of being duped, there is a sense of them not signing up for this and it's actually being imposed upon them. Um, you know, I can recall from my own experience when I worked for a particular financial institution and I resigned and I had an exit interview and they said to me, look, you know, what's one of the um, problematic experiences you've had working for us? And I said quite clearly that on the one hand, you exhort your employees quite properly to behave in an ethical and honourable uh, manner with their with your clients and with the general public. But on the other hand, you feel no compunction when it comes to not conducting yourselves ethically and honourably with your own employees. So, you know, even at the level of employee relations, there was that dichotomy between what they said and what they did. I think it has to be highlighted that, you know, our research showed that at no stage in the so-called ethical training that our mm. uh, respondents received did anyone say, you know, you have to push sales, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to behave in a way that is considered unethical. But what happened subsequently was that um, the sales training and the targets training and the emphasis on scorecards and on um, responding to those who didn't achieve targets with punitive disciplinary processes made it very clear that regardless of what was said in the so-called ethical training, <laughs> it was sales that mattered, it was targets that mattered, it was income generation that mattered. And that meant the, the employees were and are under, under constant pressure to meet targets because if they don't, that has real negative consequences and implications for their own employment security. The, and I understand from a previous conversation I've had with Julia Angrisano, the National Secretary of the Finance Sector Union, that people were also publicly shamed in the workplace across, you know, in recent years, if, if they weren't delivering on the targets expected of them? Oh, yeah. Public shaming has been part of the industry since I was working in it back in the 80s. That's nothing new. Did you actually, uh, did you actually cop that sort of behaviour yourself? Um, yes, I did. Um, there was a stage at the, the, the company that I worked for where they spent quite a large amount of money um, introducing a new sales and servicing program and every week a, a newsletter was published that recorded the names of the people who were the top sellers and, and the top income generators and by implication, um, anyone who wasn't on that list was deemed to be underperforming. What were the consequences in that, at that time, Brendan? 
Well, it, it could range for for everything from um, depending in which part of the organisation you worked for and who your manager was and what particular approach they took to the uh, sales program. It could range from everything from being okay, called so into could, the office to say you need to, to pick up your caution, game to active um, performance management uh, procedures. A reprimand or... A- um, or, or something like that, couldn't it? Tom, one of the things we saw in the um, in in the survey um, was that it was not unusual for people to be threatened with um, being sacked for not uh, meeting targets or for being. I had never um, heard that performance management um, would actually mean. Uh, discipline before. Um, so there was a, a fear uh, in, in, in the respondents about being sent to performance management because it was a public humiliation. It was a, a sign that they hadn't met their targets and everybody would know and they would be put under pressure to improve their performance. Um, and if they didn't, then that was always backed up, or not always, was often backed up with the threat of dismissal. It, yeah, the, the, there was a whiteboard method Julia Angrisano outlined uh, the other day, which um, I, I hate to call it a, a performance management method, but it possibly yes. uh, could be. Um, but that then... Uh, as was explained to me by while I was writing the book Vulture City yep. uh, by um, one of the uh, one of the whistleblowers, of course, hmm. um, is Jeff Morris was would give grounds for the organisation to take someone through performance management and also terminate their employment if you know, uh, they were deemed to be completely non-compliant with something they felt uncomfortable with anyway. Yes. Uh, I guess when, I guess the next thing that we need to think about, John, is how broadly some of these issues exist, but also how do we change the culture that has permeated the financial services sector as illustrated by the Hain Royal Commission but also the numerous parliamentary inquiries that had gone on for in excess of two decades? Uh, Tom, I think that um, <clears throat> our report is not as um, complimentary about the Royal Commission perhaps as, as many public commentators are. Um, there are um, many um, shortcomings in our view, and it starts with that use of the word greed. Um, the word greed, as it's used by the Royal Commission, uh, suggests that the behaviour that they are looking at, the misconduct, is um, individual behaviour. Um, that it, it's it's about um, people wanting to be to have too much. And, and so they uh, have a lot of discussion about um, traversing community expectations. Um, but it's, that's just a loose definition and it doesn't really hold water as to what might be too much because in the end, the only reason why there's a Royal Commission 
is that the government couldn't resist the political pressure within their own coalition to not have it, and the banks then asked them to have it. The government didn't want it, and when they set it up, they tied the reins very tightly on where it could go and where it couldn't go. And and the whole problem that is avoided when you talk about greed, in, in, in biblical terms, the word that translates greed is covetousness. And the word covetousness means doing harm to one's neighbour. But the word greed, as it is used, is mean is only related to individual behaviour of taking too much, wanting to be uh, having a, a larger share of the wealth. And so the Royal Commission... Uh, fails to address the issues of restorative justice for the customers whose case studies are made. It ignores the um, injustices done to finance sector workers almost completely. And it holds up um, a view of ethics that is, is essentially individualistic. So it is incumbent upon us, I think, to broaden the understanding of ethics to social ethics. And the question is not about people taking too much because that's what capitalism makes a virtue of. The capitalist ethic is actually about making profit as much as you can. And the only reason why the Royal Commission came into being is because so many people were hurt by that, that they made so much noise, their pain was so great that it could no longer be avoided. So we need to have an understanding of ethics that is not about individual behaviour, but it's about social behaviour. It's about how behaviour that is, un, how behaviour can affect one's neighbour, whether it's the people you work with or whether it's the customers you're serving. What is one of the most surprising things for me in this is that the Royal Commission focused completely on the injustice done to clients, but it is an exact mirror of the injustice that's done to, uh, to workers. They are two sides of the same coin. And so we need to build some coalitions around the customers and the workers about the injustices that are embedded in a capitalist ethic. And the question of capitalist ethic is it starts with the government. The government set up um, letters patent for the Royal Commission that instructed the commissioner that it couldn't bring out any recommendations that caused um, harm to Australia's financial system. So how can you say that this commission got to the truth of the matter when it didn't look at the human consequences of the misconduct that it so um, strongly brought to the service. That misconduct led people to the point of death. Whether it was suicide or bankruptcy, the consequences are horrific and there has been no public acknowledgement of sorrow and uh, restorative justice. All the compensation relationship issues are reduced to money. And that's not going to solve the problem. The hurt that is being done to people's lives will not be mediated by giving them money. It's about restoring relationships. And the banks keep talking about how they want to build trust, but they haven't said sorry publicly for the harm that they've caused over the last uh, two or three decades, nor have they... Um, done anything to protect whistleblowers. Uh, these matters would not have come to the surface. Uh, the whistleblowers that have been excoriated by the, the banks for bringing the truth to light, um, we need government and we need corporate action to protect whistleblowers, and that is a matter of urgency.
if we look at uh, the case of Jeff Morris, who was the, exactly. I guess, the central focus, if you like, mm. uh, for much of the coverage um, by Adele Ferguson and yes. other journalists, mm. And I've covered it. I covered his case study, I think, reasonably well in in, mm-hmm. in my book, which I I understand you've looked at. I have. Um, the one of the case studies that disturbed me the most was the case study, or the the instance where he's in a training room, and they're told not to tell clients that there are charges they could avoid. Yes. And that one hit home when I read that several times. I mean, how how much of that have you had in the evidence in the the material you're trawling through now? Because I understand there's a lot more work that you're working on at the present time, looking at the impact of the behaviour of financial institutions towards their employees. Well, Tom, I think um, it's certainly there. And um, a similar story to the one that you've told by Jeff Thomas is, is in the material that's been given to us to study. Um, so the, the the interaction between um, Matthew Matt Common and Ian Narev that's reported in the Royal Commission could have been avoided three years earlier if there'd been whistleblower protection because not only Jeff Morris but there were a lot of people in that training room who uh, were upset that they were being required to sell a product that was worthless. And uh, if it hadn't been for the Royal Commission, that um, infamous remark about tempering your sense of justice might not have come to light. But um, that uh, attitude or that um, that willful um, ignoring of the harm that is being done <clears throat> was allowed to continue for at least another year because uh, Matt Common caved in to Narev's requirement and those 60-odd thousand um, people who'd bought those, um, that, that insurance on their credit cards um, suffered for another uh, year not being able to use it. So um, what you're saying is true and it needs to be um, the, the foundation, I think, to put under that, the floor to put under it, is to protect those people whose ethics propels them to speak the truth, to speak the truth to power and not be... Um, and not be punished and not be um, uh, uh, caused the sort of suffering that both Jeff Morris and, and, and staff are suffering because the, the, the suffering is going on and it's, it's, um, it's wrong and the staff know it's wrong, but they are frightened that if they speak up, they'll lose their jobs. So you have to address that fear and the only way it can be addressed is by, well, um, not the only way, the, a key way it can be addressed is by whistleblower protection um, um, legislation. And I, I get this is the this is the question that uh, still concerns me greatly. We talk about whistleblower protection as one remedy, mm. but where else did how else do we shape the culture of the finance sector? Yes. So that there is, um, so that you minimise the occurrence in risk. I mean, obviously, in risk management parlance, you can never get rid of a problem, but you can certainly minimise it. What has to happen culturally so that there are fewer 
said that there are a fewer instances of sure. um, poor behaviour. Brendan and I have had a number of discussions about that. And Brendan, you, you might like to talk a bit about that, the way that we developed that idea of solidarity um, and the, um, the importance of that as a, as a cultural sort of transforming thing. Yeah, well, uh, um, before I do that, I, I would like to say that um, in, on that issue of the culture, what is also necessary is not just whistleblowing laws, mm. but it is also necessary to change the corporation's law. I mean, the corporation's law in many respects sets the cultural framework within which the finance sector operates. And it is worth noting that the corporation's law makes the primary moral duty of directors the the best interest and benefit of shareholders. And that always gets translated as shareholder return, shareholder value, increased share prices. And by making the primary moral responsibility of directors and by extension the executive management teams who work under them the benefit of shareholders, you automatically create a cultural framework in which improving the share price, improving the return on shareholding becomes the primary purpose for which corporations exist and therefore the primary end to which the work of the corporation is directed. And so in that context, it axiomatically follows that an emphasis on sales and income generation at all costs uh, becomes the normative mode of existence. And that's enshrined in the legislation. So mm. what needs to happen as well as whistleblower protections is the um, change to the corporation's law to actually make the cultural framework of the corporate sector more socially responsible. Correct. Um, in terms of the um, matters around solidarity that, that John was referring to, uh, what we discovered is that the respondents to the surveys um, found a source of strength and resilience in their shared experience, in sharing stories with their co-workers, in sharing experiences with their co-workers, in, in which they shared this um, experience of ethical violation, of the violation of the violence done to their sense of themselves as ethical beings. And, and through that shared common experience, they found a source of strength and resilience. And that created a culture amongst the employees of um, shared strength. And so one of the things that we've um, suggested in our report is that mm. the idea of solidarity itself needs to be revisited and looked at again. And instead of it um, being necessarily thought of in the industrial political strength, it can actually be a source of resistance to the corrosive effects of an unethical work culture 
if, if people are able to share more widely their experience of harm within the workplace, if that experience is able to be connected to some form of um, public process in which they can lament the harm that is done to them. John mentioned earlier that, that none of the financial institutions have said sorry for the harm which they've caused, and that's in part because there is no public process of lament for the victims of uh, the harm done to them by the industry. Uh, so if, if there was a way in which people could collectively share their experience, support and help each other and uh, provide support to whistleblowers and engage in a process of public lament, uh, our research indicates to date, and we expect future research will bear this out, that um, this sense of solidarity of shared experience can in fact over time become the source and wellspring of cultural change within organizations mm. now that that raises an interesting question brendan which is uh, we generally in this country don't see boards of listed companies to start with um, that have workers representatives on them right um, there's no, uh, unless it's a board of an industry super fund where you've got the employers and unions represented, uh, you don't have that direct connection from the uh, workforce onto, hmm. uh, onto, a, onto a company board. Now, is that the kind of thing that you would want to see happen over time, particularly in financial institutions that would be able to begin the process of direct communication from the work workforce impacted by behaviours to the board that is responsible for, for oversight of the entire uh, entire entity. I'm not sure that Brendan and I uh, have spent enough time with the material to form a, an opinion. I, I understand that uh, our, our report uh, at least opens up that issue and we would be encouraging that to be looked at more thoroughly. But one of the things that uh, your question brings to mind is the, um, is the way in which the Royal Commission focused it on a top-down approach to misconduct. And um, there's a, enough in, in our report and what we're looking at at the moment with um, further research material that suggests that cultural transformation needs to be um, bottom up as well and that um, the, the, the question of worker participation needs to be um, built from the shop floor as it were um, as well as changes at the um, legislative level at the, at the board level. So um, we, we would be um, I think leaning towards um, a both and uh, approach to worker um, empowerment and one of the models that we've um, advocated in our report is the peer support model, which um, I had a lot of experience with in my work with um, a Uniting Church Agency, dealing with people who suffered, um, who were um, victims of work-related deaths, so the um, uh, suicide, um, you know, survivors of suicide 
and uh, long-term injured workers. So there's a, there's a lot of experience now um, around changing the symptoms that people are being labelled as mental illness um, and bringing them together to, to, to um, find strength in, in sharing the symptoms and rejecting that sort of um, pathologising of symptoms of injustice and turning them into uh, meeting points of, um, of new forms of solidarity which uh, will build ch- change from the ground up. It's an interesting approach you outline, but but that takes uh, it would take a bit bit of time to put <laughs> put that kind of thing in place, given the, the given the culture uh, is entrenched, which is part of the reason why I raised the idea of yeah the the notion of yeah worker participation on boards because it's a long way from a teller window. Uh, in a financial institution's branch, um, somewhere in the sticks, sure, up to the boardroom. Yes, I I would add, Tom, that um, the financial institutions have been very sophisticated and very successful in creating structures that give the appearance of employee participation, but which are in fact window dressing creating consultative committees and staff committees and all this sort of thing that are toothless tigers. So I personally wouldn't be terribly confident about worker participation, particularly on boards even, um, until and unless that kind of legislative change around whistleblowers and the corporation's law is enacted, but also until, as John has been talking about, that um, bottom-up cultural groundswell occurs where peers can actually support each other and can actually, through shared experience and through a peer support process, actually have real solidarity with each other because staff representatives on boards are going to be isolated and eventually either co-opted or rendered ineffective unless there are these other meaningful structures and cultural processes in place. That's that's an interesting point and one 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 worth noting. I've looked at the Corps Act over the years in various contexts, and, and probably some refinement needed in directors' obligations uh, uh, in in that space. Not only because of what you refer to, but also there's a greater uh, greater focus on. Um, corporate social responsibility, uh, environmental and sustainability reporting and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, it becomes a question of how you grapple with that. Uh, there's a final one for both of you in terms of the ongoing work. The most your, your, your public output so far has been this particular report we're talking about. Where do you go to next? Um, look, uh, Tom, um, we've been asked by the uh, by the union to have a look at um, a material that was submitted through a portal that ran 
uh, on their website through the Royal Commission. And um, there's 353 uh, FSU members who've contributed to that. So there's um, quite a, de a degree of um, information. Uh, people have been very honest about their experience and uh, we're looking to um, uh, finish a, an analysis of that and, and continue our discussions um, with the union. I guess that um, the, the, the report that we're referring to today um, beat the COVID-19 by about a week. So um, it came out and then more or less uh, went into cold storage. So we're looking to um, pick up our conversa the conversation that we've been having with the union about this material and um, I think the particular dimension that, that started our conversation with them is how this material might translate into um, a professional ethics program that, um, that uh, finance sector workers could be um, participate in and be accredited for. And we're looking forward to how that conversation might unfold too in the coming uh, 12 months. There's also uh, another issue with another issue that may need to be tackled, and it's advocacy with government over a period of time, surely. Uh, yes, well, I, I think um, the, the limits of our position at the moment, uh, uh, which we've discussed with the union, is that the advocacy work would be there, portfolio, and we'll try and be of assistance in the research and policy development area. But um, uh, Brendan's uh, also involved in a branch of the Uniting Church where we'll, he'll be taking up these issues through the ethics um, committee of the, of the church and, and we would hope that the, the Uniting Church will um, take, take a stand on some of these issues uh, into the future, uh, unless I'm speaking out of turn, Brendan. Um, not as far as I'm concerned. Um, what others feel on that issue is, is perhaps a different story. But certainly I think that um, it is something that the church does need to pay attention to because the church, like all other institutions, is plugged into the market system, is plugged into the capitalist mode of, of economic activity. And so the issues that are raised in this report are very much at the heart of the church's own life and, and the way it engages with the interface of government and business and society. I'll be uh, interested to see the, the where you you take that, Brendan, and, and also the, the future research that's done uh, and published by the Finance Sector Union, and perhaps there's another book in it at some stage. <laughs> um, but the, the, I'd like to. I'd like to thank you both for joining me today. It's been an incredible discussion uh, because you take, you offer a different perspective to what um, you would normally have uh, put into the public domain about the conduct of you know, corporations and how uh, their their conduct impacts on the employees. Hmm. Uh, so I thank you both for that. Thanks for the opportunity, Tom. Thanks, Absolutely. Tom.
Absolute pleasure, and, um, and I look forward to, as I said, hearing the progress of the work because it is uh, rather important work that you are doing. And to the listeners of the podcast, if you didn't catch the previous one with Julianne Grisana from the Finance Sector Union, uh, you'll find it on the ACAST platform or your or the other platforms in which you've listened to this one. And thank you for listening.